Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Everybody in the Pool, the podcast for the climate economy. We dive deep into the climate crisis and come up with solutions. I'm your host, Molly Wood. There's a kind of fascinating phrase I heard back when I was at Marketplace visiting a gold mine trying to learn more about metals extraction, and it stuck with me for a long time. Anything that isn't grown is mined. In this world, when you consider the stuff we use and that's all around us every day, it all got here in one of those two ways. It was grown or it was extracted. So when we look at our big basket of potential climate solutions, we have to examine not just the materials we use, but how we get or create them. And today's guest has co-invented a new process for transforming seawater into magnesium metal. He would hate it if I called it alchemy, but honestly, I can't help it because any sufficiently cool new technology just feels like magic. All right, let's science out. My name is Alex Grant. I am CEO at a company called Magrathia. We're a tech startup in Oakland, California, developing a new generation of electrolytic technology for making magnesium metal from seawater and brines. First, tell us about magnesium and magnesium metal and why it's so important. Absolutely. I can talk about magnesium all day. So um, there there are three structural metals, steel, aluminum, and magnesium. Magnesium is the lightest of the three. So it's about a third lighter than aluminum and about four times lighter than steel. And that is one reason why mag has been used in almost every car for the last 50 years in small amounts. So magnesium has this really important role to play for radical lightweighting for vehicles of all types, both on the ground and in the air, because it basically just carries around less dead weight than aluminum and steel do. It's also relatively more easily decarbonized than aluminum and steel. Aluminum and steel are are extraordinarily challenging to to decarbonize and get to carbon neutrality. So that's one reason why my co-founder Jacob and I came from actually the battery supply chain to come start working on magnesium metal production technology, because we realized that the battery supply chain was going to get built slower and be more expensive than anyone would have imagined. And we needed more levers to accelerate electrification and decarbonization. Mm-hmm. Because if you can essentially eliminate dead weight from a vehicle, you can reduce the amount of batteries you need in that vehicle to go a certain distance, or you can squeeze out a, a longer range and maybe if you remove dead weight. So that was um, a big part of our motivation to pursue mag. And, and, and magnesium has been used increasingly over the last maybe 10 to 20 years to meet cafe standards for internal combustion engines too. So this, this kind of narrative for magnesium and radical lightweighting actually predates electrification which is a good thing in reality, because it means that it's not some brand new technology that no one's ever heard of. Right. So that's kind of like the, you know, the environmental narrative that really like motivates us and got us working on Meg. But there's this whole other angle to it that is really compelling as well, which is the idea that it's kind of like the gateway metal. So someone, someone described this to me a couple of months ago that, you know, magnesium is actually used in almost every aluminum alloy. So 
you actually lose the aluminum industry almost completely, which is essential for, for vehicles of all kinds, both on the ground and in the air, if you lose magnesium supply. And that actually happened last year. So an aluminum company had to declare force measure because they ran out of magnesium. Huh. It's used for desulfurization and steel making. So you can't make a low sulfur steel, uh, which, you know, imbues higher performance without magnesium metal. It's used to make titanium, which is a, a more expensive metal that's often used in aerospace. And um, it's used as a reagent to make titanium. So without, without magnesium metal supply that's reliable, you lose steel, you lose titanium, and you lose aluminum, which are all really important. Right. So, you know, when we were just finishing up our first fundraise, our angel round last year in March 2022, Russia invaded Ukraine. And the whole onshoring narrative and kind of national security narrative behind critical minerals became like really dramatic and suddenly like very real, especially in Europe. So, so it's a bit of a kind of code red hair on fire emergency that China and Russia control more than 90% of the world's magnesium metal supply, just completely dominated. Mm. And there's only one primary producer in the entire Western world that's like basically on their last legs and about to go out of business. Got it. So, you know, I sometimes joke that the VCs like poke us to go fast, but like this is like a really legitimate reason to go as fast as possible to bring on magnesium metal supply in the, in the United States. And that's what, you know, par- partially really energizes us. So here you have, okay, so you had identified this really crucial metal that, as you point out, is primarily now produced, not even primarily, <laughs> in the extreme majority produced by Russia and China. It is lightweight, flexible, and we need a ton more of it. How... But then then what is the unlock, the next unlock that gets you to a new way to produce magnesium reliably? So, um, yeah, j- just to kind of give us kind of context here. So the, in China, they use a process called the pigeon process. That's so basically a, a Rube Goldberg device of coal. So they use waste heat from coal refining. They use coal to make the reagent that reduces the magnesium metal from magnesia. They use coal to, to roast magnesite to liberate CO2 and making magnesium oxide. Like, it's just incredibly coal intense and incredibly labor intense. In China in the 90s, they had a lot of coal and a lot of labor, but increasingly they have less of both. And in the West, we certainly don't want to double down on process technologies that rely so heavily on coal and labor. So what we've done at Magrathia is we've realized and kind of discovered that electrolytic magnesium metal production technology, not so not thermal using coal, but electrolytic using electricity, is a technology stack that's been developed and deployed maybe five to eight times, but been done differently and never really perfectly in each case. Um, so what we've done is we've reviewed every single process ever developed based on the electrolysis technology and imbued radical improvements to the way that the magnesium is processed before it gets electrolyzed mm-hmm. to really reduce costs and reduce environmental impacts. The key for low-cost, reliable, low-carbon-intensity magnesium metal is technology, and we are technologists, so especially kind of suited to unlocking magnesium metal as it is really a technological problem and a price of energy problem. And of course, renewables are just crashing the price of electricity, so electrolytic technologies are very favorable. And what's really, yeah, what's really interesting about MAG is that it, it's not a resource problem. So it doesn't matter if you control a magnesium deposit. You know, the, the vast majority of magnesium metal ever made has been made from seawater by Dow in Texas. Yeah. So it's a really interesting critical mineral problem that is completely a technology problem and not uh, a resource problem. 
And that's what you're doing, right? Like Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly our focus. Your process is making it out of seawater or salty water brine. Exactly. Yeah. Tell us about that. So really high level, the electrolytic technology stack has four steps. So the first is a hydrometallurgical upstream step where the salts are purified and concentrated using natural evaporation, using potentially chemicals sometimes and electricity. Once a magnesium chloride concentrate is produced, the salt is dried from the brine to make an anhydrous magnesium chloride with very, very little or no water. And that's actually the hard part. And the reason why is because of a process called hydrolysis. When you try to make anhydrous mag chloride, it's very different from halite or sodium chloride like table salt. It doesn't just let the water go when you increase the temperature and reduce the pressure. It actually reacts with water and it makes magnesium oxide, which is inert and you can't make metal from it as easily. So controlling and preventing that hydrolysis reaction is the, is the name of the game for electrolytic magnesium metal. And every single time that electrolytic magnesium metal has ever been built, a different hydrolysis process has been used. Hmm. So we've developed a really low capex intensity, simple, robust approach to dehydration. That's our main technology innovation. And we filed like, you know, eight provisional patent applications, and we've now converted two into full patent applications. And uh, yeah, once we've uh, produced anhydrous chloride, we melt it and electrolyze it in a molten salts electrolyzer leveraging historical designs that are all kind of free to use now because all the patents are expired. And we've imbued some improvements on the electrolyzer, but it's not really like the main kind of bottleneck in, in magnesium production tech. But what that electrolyzer does is it splits the magnesium chloride into magnesium metal and, and chlorine, which can be collected and sold or converted into hydrochloric acid, very valuable co-product. And yeah, once that metal has been made, it gets tapped out very similar to how aluminum is, is tapped out of electrolysis cells using a vacuum and sent to a foundry where it can be alloyed, where it can be die-cast, sand-cast, poured into a, a billet or, you know, in whatever form that people want to be able to use the metal. So, yeah, that's really the high-level, you know, kind of four steps. Hydromet, dehydration, electrolysis, foundry. And, uh, you know, our core focus is on that, that mean smelting step. That's really the hard part. Yeah. Um, everything else is, like, relatively straightforward. It's funny because when you explain it, it's very different than when I tell people about Magrathia, which is I'm like, they're making magnesium metal from seawater and they basically have this like really complicated process and they dry it out and stuff. And then they put it in a Harry Potter cauldron and they bubble it and freaking metal forms (laughs) like it's magic. So (laughs) there are two ways to tell uh, that story. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, um, I think I think that your telling of the story is uh, is just fine. So tell me, um, having raised the question of why are you the right people and are you the right people, tell me about the background of yourself and your co-founder and why you really are, because it's you two are fascinating geniuses. <laughs> well, uh, so I'm from Canada, originally from near Toronto, studied uh, chemical engineering and philosophy at McGill in Montreal. I went for a PhD in chemical engineering at Northwestern, studying CO2 transformation. I uh, was very interested in making in solar fuels for energy storage, but I, I learned a lot more about thermodynamics and realized that there were some challenges associated with that. So I, uh, I ended up uh, meeting another grad student who had some ideas for lithium extraction technology, which got me into kind of extracting metallurgy. Moved to California, I dropped out of my PhD in 2017 and helped start a company called Vilac Solutions. I proved out the technology at Benchscale. I built the first mini pilots that showed it could be an economic way of making lithium chemicals. Um, and that was successful. So now they've raised hundreds of millions of dollars and they're hundreds of people. I left in early 2019, started my own consulting company that was very successful also, helping different companies figure out what types of process technologies they would need 
to make lithium chemicals from unconventional natural resources. So I had clients in Japan, Norway, across Europe, across North America, Australia, Africa, South America, and learned a lot, met a lot of people. And interestingly, I was called out to Utah multiple times to help take lithium out of magnesium chloride brines. Hmm. So in, uh, in potash and salt operations, magnesium and lithium kind of get stuck together. And now there's a couple different producers of these types of brines in Utah and, and in other places in the world who are starting to make lithium chemicals from magnesium chloride brines. So I kind of accidentally started learning about the resource base for magnesium. And I learned a lot about fundamentals of, you know, aqueous electrolyte chemistry in brines and, and process technology for, for making things from brines. So I've been working in brine resource development for like seven years and know many of the technical and commercial realities of, of making products from those types of resources. So that was like weirdly specific, right? <laughs> I'm going to interject and say this is actually how I met Alex when I was reporting on how to extract lithium from brine in the Salton Sea in California. You can kind of see why his name popped up on the expert list. Now to his co-founder. Jacob, my co-founder, our CTO, he, uh, he's from Australia. So we're both from like, you know, the, the mining colonies now now in, in, in California, building mm-hmm. a company. Um, Jacob also studied chemical engineering. Uh, his first stop out of undergrad was at Alcoa in Perth, making alumina to make aluminum. So he's been in the light metal supply chain for like almost a decade. And for a very long time, Jacob thought that aluminum was going to kind of eat steel's lunch because it was much lighter and um, because it uh, is electrolytically produced. About a third of the cost structure of making aluminum is electricity. And being Australian, he was a solar energy maximalist and thought that anything, any production process that's you know dependent on electricity is favorable for the future because you know electricity is becoming cheap and abundant and clean. Yeah. So um, so anywho, he uh, ended up going to Cambridge in the UK for his PhD in chemi, and then ended up in the US working on the battery supply chain uh, as 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 was I. And um, he came out here about four years ago to work for Tesla, and we became friends then. So he built the cathode pilot for Tesla's cell program. And um, yeah, we were just really both passionate about materials and decarbonization. And, and yeah, what, one day someone, someone suggested he look at MAG because it was kind of like aluminum, like an electrolytic light metal, but even more so. So it was, it was his thesis on steroids. Mm-hmm. The recipe for magnesium metal is more or less seawater plus electricity. There's no bauxite mining in primary rainforest in the Amazon for aluminum. There's no Bayer process to make alumina with like 1100 degree Celsius calcinations. There's all this like fossil fuel and open pit mining, like cost structure that, that doesn't need to exist for, for MAG. So, um, so yeah, that was like kind of the hook was this kind of decarbonization opportunity through magnesium metal. And then, you know, my work in brines just dovetailed perfectly into that. So so yeah, we were, you know, we were really not looking for jobs. I mean, you know, he was happy at Tesla. I was happy working for myself consulting, but uh, we just got so hooked and just fell down this rabbit hole so fast. And yeah, basically the rest is history. So <laughs> time for a quick break. When we come back, a little more science talk and the absolutely fascinating history about how we used to make magnesium metal in the United States for like 80 freaking years. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, 
relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome back to Everybody in the Pool. We're talking with Alex Grant, co-founder of Magrathia Metals, about the magical lightweight metal that is magnesium and why it's such a good climate solution. Let's put... Okay, let's put a finer point on the decarbonization part of this. It's easy to decarbonize magnesium easier because you can use electricity and that electricity can be derived from renewable energy, right? Well, yeah, so a couple things. So so yes, so electrification enables decarbonization and that's a theme playing out in many industries, right? People trying to substitute out gas and coal for electricity to decarbonize things. But there's, there's another thing on top, which is the, the chemistry of the types of molten salts that we use as the electrolyte for making magnesium metal. So mm-hmm. these temperature, these, these electrolytes, uh, they, they melt at a much lower temperature than the electrolytes used to make aluminum do. It's also a molten salt electrolysis process. And um, that makes it, you know, basically easier to contain heat because uh, obviously, you know, harder to keep hotter things hot. But um, also that chemistry is much more forgiving. So it allows you to sort of play around with temperature and composition in much more creative ways. So mm-hmm. the types of molten salts that we actually make metal from are the same types of molten salts that people have used for concentrated solar power to basically capture and move heat to produce renewable energy. And the similar molten salts used for nuclear. There's all this like kind of knowledge that can be translated from these other industries to be applied to mag metal production that's never been used before. So we're doing that for the first time. And that allows us to actually engineer in intermittency into the process, mm-hmm. which you never could with aluminum because the, the chemistry is very fickle. So that's a big part of it. Brief explainer interruption. Engineering in intermittency means Alex and Jacob have designed a process that can deal with the fact that renewable energy like solar or wind power might not be consistently available or might fluctuate from time to time. Okay, back to Alex. And then finally, you know, our kind of unique contribution to dehydration technology development allows us to actually produce magnesium oxide as a co-product of drying the mag chloride, which we can use for ocean alkalinity enhancement and carbon dioxide removal. So it means that if we can get clean power in, right, and there aren't really that many other inputs, then if you, when you, you know, kind of add up the embodied CO2 emissions in the life cycle assessment, we're able to sort of like, offset our own emissions by sequestering CO2 using the magnesium oxide, which can sequester CO2 and put into seawater, for example. Mm-hmm. And uh, and yeah, really potentially produce the first carbon neutral primary metal ever. Like no one in steel or aluminum is promising that because it's, it's really hard or it's basically impossible. Yeah. But in this case, it actually could be possible. So yeah, that's really our goal. And in a, so in addition to all of that, which is already a lot, <laughs> that's, Wonderful. Is the, because we've got, okay, you've got potentially a carbon neutral metal at at minimum, a much, much less impactful metal. You're onshoring it, which ensures a domestic supply of something that's obviously very critical. And also to what extent, if at all, can it start to replace aluminum or steel? So, so yeah, so like there's already this like super thriving, important market that we can sell into to get going, right? We don't have to create any market, which is lovely. 
Right. Because to remind people, it's already an alloy. It's already part of aluminum and steel. It's already essential to aluminum industry. It's already essential to steel. It's already essential to titanium, right? Mm-hmm. Beyond that, though, there's this really interesting growth prospect of essentially substituting for against aluminum and steel. Now, this is something, again, I could talk about for hours, but you know, really at a high level, magnesium and aluminum especially are weirdly interchangeable. Hmm. So their melting points are almost identical, like 650 and 660C. And we've actually now heard of multiple, multiple examples of the exact same die casting machine being used for casting magnesium and aluminum parts. So magnesium and aluminum are like, they're kind of like brother metals. You know, almost all magnesium alloys have a little bit of aluminum in them. All aluminum alloys have a bit of magnesium in them, right? And um, and yeah, weirdly substitutable just based on the price ratio. When you look back over decades of magnesium metal kind of literature, you'll see reference over and over and over again to the magnesium to aluminum price ratio. And when that price ratio gets below something like kind of 1.3 or so, which is really just the ratio of densities because magnesium is a third lighter, uh, things start to kind of flip. Hmm. So the, 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 the kind of the lower you go in that price ratio, the more things make sense to be made out of mag. And that's, that's an effect that's been kind of demonstrated and, and observed uh, you know, multiple times in, in different industries. So you know, when you kind of put all that together right, and think about the future, right, what we're doing here is thinking about the future. You know, aluminum really has a lot of headwinds, right? Like bauxite mining and aluminum production is only getting more expensive. The electricity is, is very hard to kind of take advantage of solar and wind to make it cheaper and cleaner. And uh, it, it fundamentally emits CO2 in the process. You burn a carbon anode to make aluminum. You're burning coal in aluminum smelting. So it's very hard to decarbonize. Whereas magnesium is like just kind of the opposite of all those things. Like um, almost everything suggests that it can only become cheaper in the future based on where the world's going. So the price ratio, like we believe, right, leveraging our technology innovation should kind of come down quite a bit, which unlocks a lot more mag usage compared to what was possible before based on, or, you know, historically based on historic prices. Right. So yeah, that's like something we're super excited about. And then remind us where, remind me where that that usage would occur. Is it like in car parts? Is it the doors? Is it rocket ships? Is it, you know, tell tell us a little more about like where aluminum is used that could potentially be replaced with the caveat that we're talking about the future here. Yeah. Yeah. Tons of structural parts in cars, seats, dashboards, potentially doors and outer panels, mm-hmm. battery pack enclosures, like this, especially the ends, which can be casted uh, effectively. In aerospace, magnesium is already used all over the place. So what, one of my favorite parts at, at uh, uh, a sand casting foundry um, that we have a, a MOU with is a, is a is a door hinge from a Boeing plane that that, that they they make and it's it's like ninety two percent magnesium mm-hmm. so there's lots of parts in in planes that are mag you know in 2014 the, the FAA approved the use of magnesium metal for kind of internal parts in planes so historically it was kind of not approved because people didn't understand it well enough but now it is approved. So yeah, we you know we think we think there's like you know we we essentially see and we validated in many different ways kind of like a 10x growth opportunity in there for mag die casting yeah. to make magnesium parts to displace aluminum and steel. So that's like the the really like long term like fascinating you know kind of opportunity here. And again, the really interesting thing is that although this is a new way to make magnesium from brine, it used to be the metal that countries would try to win wars with. History time. 
Yeah, so Dow started making magnesium metal from a brine under Michigan in the 1910s. Um, and in World War II, the, the Nazis were bombing London so effectively, partly because their planes were so magnesium light. I was going to say magnesium heavy, but it's not exactly true. Magnesium light. Right. So they were they could carry more bombs, so they could bomb London more, kind of more aggressively. Oh. And part of the reason why they were using so much mag was because, you know, it made them more effective at warfighting, but also because their alumina and iron ore supply chains got cut off in the war. So basically the only structural metal that they had in abundance in Germany was, was magnesium. Um, so the UK and the US went to Dow in, Midland, in Midland, Michigan, and they said, hey, could you ramp up? magnesium production like 20x like right now <laughs> and they did so <clears throat> in order to move as fast as possible um they they went to the sea so they built a gigantic smelter in freeport texas that became the biggest magnesium metal production site of all time i think it had a nameplate of like 80 or 100,000 tons per year or 60 to 100,000 tons per year of mag and um and that was the, that was the, the largest magnesium plant ever built making it from seawater electrolytically And Dow made a lot of different mag products. So they were making magnesium boats. There were like entire planes with like magnesium outer shells used by the military. They're making almost every kind of like tool or piece of equipment that you can imagine that you would want to be light, especially they made out of mag. Like we have a ladder in our lab made out of magnesium by Dow from seawater. Um, and it's shockingly light. Like it always ends up in random places in the lab because the team always wants to use it. It's a light. So, um, so yeah, so Dow ran that plant for 80 years. So, you know, chemical plants aren't supposed to last that long. Just like humans, they die, right? Yeah. Like they usually will go for like 30, 40, 50 years maybe. But this plant ran for like 80 years in Texas. And it only shut down in 1998 when a hurricane came and knocked out power to the plant for a couple of days, which meant all the salt froze in the electrolysis cells. And that basically scrapped the plant. And it was so old, Dow was like, oh my gosh, we're not going to try to rebuild this thing. It's too much of a pain. And at the same time, China had started dumping. So leveraging that process I described earlier that was very cold and labor intense, the, the Chinese government actually gave Chinese magnesium producers, I think it was a 16% export rebate. So they were paid 16% on the value of the metal to export it. So they, they like basically yeah, incentivized dumping of super cheap metal yeah. internationally, which shut down most Western production. It was just, it's impossible to compete if a government is like literally paying people, right, to export it and dump it on other markets. Right. So yeah, that, that created what we call like the magnesium dark age of the last 20 years, where like a lot of people have like forgotten that it's an option, despite the fact that it has like all these incredible properties that, you know, really are going to bring a lot of value for electrification and decarbonization. And yeah, really a big part of our mission is like reviving the legacy of Dow and like you know, capturing a lot of the knowledge that was created by Dow because they really did solve most problems of kind of manufacturing and producing magnesium. I was going to say, minus this one part that you've yeah. perfected, like mm -hmm. I, I keep telling you, you need to lean harder into the part that you have invented that is novel. Yeah, I remember you saying, Molly, that like we're, we're almost like too humble about that kind of contribution we've made. Yeah. But, um, I'm like, yeah, you need really... to brag about <clears throat> the unlock part. <laughs> Yeah, we've we've developed what we think is like really a way more sophisticated way of doing the dehydration than even Dow had available. So, you know, if Dow could run for 80 years and make all these incredible products out of magnesium um, with inferior technology, then, you know, basically we think we can do better and create a lot of value in the process. 
And potentially, you know, you sort of breeze past the embodied carbon part, but in theory, you'll be able to unlock a global market that will want, especially if you're making it at the same or cheaper price point, will want carbon neutral or low carbon magnesium as opposed to coal derived. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've spoken to like probably most of the aluminum companies in North America and Europe, uh, most of the automotive companies. And I would say at least a minimum half of them have told us we would, one, want to use more mag if we had low cost, low carbon mag available. Yeah. Um, but two, you know, even for our existing needs, like we would vastly prefer to buy Western made, clean, low carbon mag. Right. Like it just takes so many different boxes for them. Yep. You know, I've even, I've even had aluminum companies tell me that their order of priorities are one, supply security, i.e. getting off of China, two, decarbonization, three, price. You know, this guy didn't need to say that. <laughs> right. Whoa. But like, yeah, I know. Isn't that a statement? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're, we're rising to meet that moment. I love this because, I mean, just like, let's take our last few minutes here to talk about why this is such a big solution like why these are the kinds of climate solutions that are that are not visible to people right it's the stuff that you don't think about it's the it's the literal ground up creation of the things that we see all around us that need to be addressed in a really hard science kind of way yeah i mean i uh you know for years i've had a philosophy that you really have to like kind of steal the carbon emissions out from under people mm-hmm. right like all of this, all of these efforts to like um, either convince companies or consumers to emit less by not flying or swapping out their coal for natural gas or whatever, like has kind of failed, right? Because we we haven't really implemented like economy wide, you know, measures to reduce CO two emissions and stuff. So like the the way we kind of think about our solution is like you know we're essentially providing like the same service at the end of the day, which is transportation or you know whatever it may be in a more environmentally friendly way with lower embodied CO2 emissions with less dead weight in the case of vehicles, the end user doesn't need to, doesn't even need to know in a way. Right. You know, most people don't know the difference between aluminum and steel, right? Like I get, if they gave you two blocks, you got, like what most people wouldn't even know the difference. Right. So you can't expect them to know. You can't need them to know. <laughs> you just have to provide solutions that kind of just makes it so that people don't have to figure that out. Yep. I love it. Alex Grant, CEO of Megrathia Metals. Thank you so much for the time. Oh, wait, wait, before I let you go, explain the name. So uh, Megrathia is a planet from the book Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy that builds planets. So Megrathians are kind of specialty architects for for, for manufacturing planets. And um, yeah, we, uh, we, we chose a name because obviously it starts with Meg, um, which is very relevant. But um, but also we're just like huge science fiction nerds. so. Our whole lab is like just littered with like Hitchhiker's Guide references and Dune references and stuff like this. And we just love that that metaphor of like, you know, planet building, right? Like the first kind of wave of industrialization has caused a lot of problems. So we're trying to, you know, reindustrialize, rebuild, remanufacture using clean technology with fewer CO2 emissions and fewer impacts of many different kinds, you know, especially if we could eliminate mining from the supply chain of structural metal, like that's kind of like a exploding bringing environmental you know proposition so yeah we're trying to rebuild earth in a way and that's that's what the megrathians do so i love that that's amazing thank you thank you so much for the time this is fantastic thank you molly yeah pleasure 
That's it for this episode of Everybody in the Pool. Thank you so much for listening. If you have thoughts or suggestions about people who should be on this show, please email me in at everybodyinthepool.com. You can find all the latest episodes and more at everybodyinthepool.com, the website, and subscribe to my newsletter at mollywood.co. And if you want to become a subscriber to this podcast and get an ad-free version of the show, hit the link in the description in your podcast app of choice. Thanks to those of you who already have. See you next week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.